Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast with me, Finbar Birmingham, at the South China Morning Post here in Hong Kong. Today, April 30th, marks 100 days of the Biden presidency. He spoke at length this week about his plans for the next 1,361, but also about what he perceives to be the most serious foreign policy issue. It's China, of course. All of this in a week in which debate raged over China's population. Is it still growing? Why is it important? And why doesn't anybody know the full story? We'll discuss all of the above and more with our sage political economy editors, John Carter and Joe Shin. Then in the second half of the show, I'm going to catch up with my colleague in Beijing, Sarah Jung, to discuss the latest chapter in fraught Sino-Indian relations. India is currently in the midst of a crippling coronavirus outbreak, but has refused any offer of help from China. Is this a deepening of the rivalry that saw the two superpowers face off in the Himalayas last year? All that and more in this week's China Geopolitics Podcast. I spent a lot of time with President Xi. Traveled over 17,000 miles with him. Spent, they tell me, over 24 hours in private discussions with him. He's deadly earnest about becoming the most significant consequential nation in the world. He and others, autocrats, think that democracy can't compete in the 21st century with autocracies. It takes too long to get consensus. The investments I proposed tonight also advance the foreign policy, in my view, that benefits the middle class. That means making sure every nation plays by the same rules in the global economy, including China. In my discussion with President Xi, I told him, we welcome the competition. We're not looking for conflict. But I made absolutely clear that we will defend America's interest across the board. America will stand up to unfair trade practices and undercut American workers and American industries like subsidies from state to state-owned operations and enterprises and the theft of American technology and intellectual property. I also told President Xi that we'll maintain a strong military presence in the Indo-Pacific, just as we do with NATO and Europe. Not to start a conflict, but to prevent one. That was, of course, the voice of U.S. President Joseph R. Biden. And it's fair to say that his first 100 days in office have been slightly more aggressive and proactive, maybe, than 
I certainly expected, given his rather timid candidacy. Uh, he was speaking to the Congress in thir- on Thursday in an effort to shore up support for a $4 trillion stimulus package. He cast the US-China relationship as a battle in century-defining technologies and a litmus test of the merits of democracy versus autocracy. I'm joined as ever by political economy editors John Carter and Joe Shin. John, I want to ask you how much of this was, in a sense, electioneering from Biden, trying to unite both sides of the aisle, uh, bringing China into the debate in the knowledge that this is perhaps the one issue on which everyone agrees? Well, it's clearly leverage. I mean, particularly in the Senate, where the the there's 50 um, Democrats and 50, well, 48 Democrats, two independents who vote with the Democrats and 50 Republicans. So it's tied 50-50 and, and Kamala Harris, the vice president, can break ties. But you have to keep the Democrats on side. And there are some Democrats who are not comfortable with Biden's program, particularly the cost. And so using China as leverage, we need to compete with China, with, otherwise they're going to eat our lunch is good politics, and this is what Biden is doing, is it keeps everyone focused on that subject and everything on that subject is support for that subject. And so we'll see how it works out. It's early days. Mm-hmm. It will take weeks, if not months, for the Congress to, to decide on all of this. Yeah, and Joshin, is there recognition perhaps that this is as much domestic politics as foreign policy in China or do you think they're listening very carefully to these words and seeing it as a setting up of a, it's almost like the Cold War language, isn't it? Oh, yes, Fingba. I think uh, this is uh, quite interesting because uh, uh, China for a long time has tried to be, you know, uh, by this time and not to be seen as a major rivalry in, of the United States on the global stage. But now increasingly China knows that or China kind of understands that it can no longer do this. Because you know all, all these phrases when the eternal at the eternal meetings leaked out saying the uh, you know the east is rising and the west is in decline you know, these kind of uh, 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 big assumptions of the historical uh, development. So uh, I think for China there is a need. Uh, uh, it's a similar thing to Biden for its uh, domestic politics. China needs to set up as, you know, the United States is now turning increasingly hostile against us. And we have to stick to our own chosen uh, development paths and do our own things. And we have to uh, prepare uh, for this kind of strategic rivalry against the United States. I think this is the same. And in terms of, but in terms of uh, diplomacy, I see that Beijing is trying to tone down a little bit, you know, uh, at one uh, one hand, China is, of course, we're not uh, uh, relaxed. It's preparation for this uh, uh, long-term rivalry. But the, uh, on the other hand, it is not, not in a rush to have this real, like, hot confrontation against the United States uh, so that we can see, like, the, 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 the balance uh, Beijing is trying very hard to, to, to keep, yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about a few of the actual, what what Biden actually done on China in the first 100 days of his presidency. I think today is actually uh, 100 days in. Um, So human rights sanctions on Chinese officials over Xinjiang. Uh, He has upheld the determination that was made in the last day of the Trump administration that the treatment of Uyghurs in Xinjiang constitutes genocide, which is denied by the Chinese government. Rolled out new guidelines for increased engagement with Taiwanese officials. Carried out naval drills in the South China Sea, also thrown as support behind a massive technology stimulus, which is seen as a way of perhaps rivaling China's own industry. 
I think it's fair to say, John, that there's more competition, there's more confrontation than cooperation, perhaps even more than we thought. Yes, and you can add in the uh, new sanctions on uh, restrictions on uh, computer chip exports to Chinese uh, supercomputer makers, which is a big one. Um, it was, uh, there was some th- talk that Biden would ease off on those trade restrictions, and he had done just the opposite. Also, you'll note uh, Catherine Tai, the new, new U.S. trade representative this past week, uh, said she had no plans to meet with her counterpart in China about potentially easing uh, the uh, trade tariffs. Um, the U.S. is, and she's told Congress that she's going to hold uh, China's feet to the fire to comply with the terms of the trade deal. In other words, buying lots of U.S. stuff. And we'll see how that goes. Uh, the latest report says that China's only uh, complied with 60% of those purchase commitments. Mm-hmm. So there's a ways to go. And, and the, the U.S. is being as tough and arguably even tougher on China than it was than the, the Trump administration was. Uh, however, there are at the margin, uh, there are signs of light. You have the U.S. easing uh, visa restrictions on Chinese students. You have um, John Kerry, uh, Biden's uh, climate czar, coming to China and, and having face-to-face talks with his counterpart. Uh, climate change was one of the areas where people thought China and the mm-hmm. U.S. could work together, needed to work together in order to make progress. Mm-hmm. So. There is there are signs of progress, but clearly the Biden administration is is taking a tough stand against Beijing. Yeah, one thing I'd add that uh, I, I noticed on Thursday, I believe, uh, that is not directly China related, but shows that the Biden administration hasn't really moved uh, multilateral, like in, in international terms, uh, that far from the Trump administration at the WTO dispute settlement body meeting, uh, they're still refusing to allow judges to be nominated for the appeals court. So they're still holding the WTO to ransom. I'm assuming that that's pending reform of the WTO. That's what the U.S. Trump administration wanted. Right. But I mean, I don't know how you can reform it. Uh, without China without, agreeing. Yeah. So, I, I mean, uh, you know, it's... Uh, uh, it's yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, if we look at the first 100 days, I mean, from Beijing's perspective, at least, you know, all the best hopes for the Biden administration has been, uh, you know, not materialized. For instance, we have, we have only one phone call between the two leaders and one uh, meeting in uh, Alaska, which basically the Chinese diplomats lectured as the other side, uh, as the other side shouted back, something like that. And then we have uh, this, uh, as John just mentioned, this climate envoy uh, meeting. So there we know, uh, uh, you know, real significant improvement in terms of bilateral relations. There we know uh, um, uh, developments in terms of rebuilding these uh, usual, you know, uh, Obama days is uh, uh, dialogues or diplomatic mm-hmm. channels. So, uh, so I say yes. It's uh, for Beijing. I think they finally realized, or you know, uh, confirmed their fear that you know whoever is in the White House, the uh, strategic mm-hmm. competi- competition between China and the United States will just intensify. Yeah, and I wonder, Joshin, like. As journalists, we probably find it a bit easier to cover the Biden administration because we're not waiting for the next tweet. Uh, we're not waiting to see what's going to wake us up in the middle of the in the middle of the night. But um, and I know that it's been written often that the Chinese government it took them some time to get used to dealing with the Trump administration as well. Is it a bit? Does the fact that it's slightly perhaps more predictable make any difference at all to Beijing? Well, I think this is more of the tactics, but I I think the uh, strat. 
strategies will have really makes no difference because we don't see any fundamental change from uh, Biden administration's China policy from uh, Trump administration's uh, uh, China policy. Yeah. Well, the economies are both um, in various stages of repair, recovery, what should I say? Um, the US economy returned to fairly strong growth in the first quarter. Uh, we saw China's uh, growth, of course, skyrocket in the first quarter year on year, but not so much quarter on quarter. Um, John, how do you see the two of them and like, where, how comparable are they in terms of their status? Well, first, going back to Biden, um, I mean, he, he did get past the uh, $1.9 trillion stimulus plan, which added to the $900 billion stimulus plan that was passed in, in December. So there's a lot of stimulus hitting the U.S. economy here in the first and second quarter. And this has pushed up U.S. growth, as you said uh, yesterday, the um, the U.S. reported that first quarter growth uh, grew an annualized 6.4 percent. That's an annualized mm-hmm. figure. That's the quarterly growth times four. So it's the quarterly year on year times four or quarter on quarter? Quarter on quarter times four. Okay. So we so don't know what the year on year, that comparable we to do, the Chinese. We do. It's okay. 0.4%. <laughs> okay. So it's it's low. But yeah. here's the thing. And, you, and compare the 0.4% year-over-year growth in the U.S. with 18.3% year-over-year growth in the first quarter in China. Now, China benefited from a very favorable base effect, the contraction of 6.8% in the first quarter last year. In the first quarter last year, the U.S. economy actually grew 0.3%, so it didn't have the favorable base effect. It gets that in the second quarter Mm -hmm. when the U.S. economy contracted 9.2%, which means it gets even a better uh, base effect. And so some economists are looking for U.S. growth to exceed that of China in the, starting in the second quarter. In the U.S. economy contracted in the second, third, and fourth quarters, the Chinese economy only contracted in the first quarter last year. So the U.S. has this favorable base effect for the rest of the year, and China does not. And so some argue that China, the U.S. growth will exceed China for each quarter this year and for the whole year, or for the year as a whole. And you can look at the first quarter on a quarter-over-quarter basis, the U.S. growth was already larger than China, 1.6 versus Mm 0.6. So this is partly due to special factors. I mean, the first quarter in China, you had the the virus outbreak in northern China, you had the Lunar New Year. Uh, And in America, you have all this stimulus suddenly hitting the economy and and, and giving it a big boost. Uh, China did that last year. And so they're starting to taper off their stimulus. So different cycles. Um, the U.S. economy may exceed uh, – U.S. economy growth may exceed China this year. It won't in the long run. But it may delay the date somewhat when China economy exceeds that of the U.S., which some people say could be as early as 2028. We'll have to wait and see. Yeah. It's a, 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 I'm glad you explained the difference between the annualized quarterly and year on year. Always throws people and the headlines don't really compare very well. No, they don't. <laughs> Go back to your uh, <laughs> university economics lesson. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> I wish there was just a standardized way that Fig- we all did it. Figures lie and liars figure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I'm here to tell you the difference. <laughs> I'm glad you are. Um, one of the challenges facing the Chinese economy, uh, Joe Shin, in the long run will be its demographics. 
weeks. Um, and this was a big story this week. Uh, the Financial Times ran a midweek uh, story saying that China's te- according to China's 10-year census, which has not been released, um, there will be a drop in the population uh, in the last year, which would be the first for almost 60 years. However, uh, the National Bureau of Statistics came out with a one-line statement on Thursday saying this is not true. The population is still growing. We still don't have further details on that. We're waiting for the numbers. But first of all, Joe Shane, maybe where is this confusion coming from? Why are they not just releasing the numbers? And <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, the National Bureau of Statistics has conducted this census last November. And uh, it is conducted on a nationwide basis and also, uh, you know, being helped a lot by uh, modern technologies. You know, for these days, it's much easier just to input the number of the people into the one system, right? They developed this special app and for these uh, people to do the job. But it takes longer than the 10 years ago, actually, to, mm-hmm. to produce the numbers. So this raised lots of suspicions, like, what's the problem? You know, why, why, why the delay? And, it, and today is the last day of April. And already, you know, uh, it's breaking uh, China's uh, own promises. For instance, uh, when, when they started this uh, uh, census and the national committee of this uh, census will say, OK, the last schedule is we will release the result in April. And of course, the National Bureau of Statistics said earlier that it will be released in the first 10 days of April. Of course, they missed uh, miss, uh, miss, uh, a deadline. But still, you can see it's very, uh, uh, it's a high sensitivity behind this. Because, you know, it's very interesting that the Financial Times break the story saying there will be the first drop in Chinese population for a long, long period of time. <laughs> of course, it's just wrong uh, saying it is the first since 1949. China actually reported population drop in 1960 during the great... 61. And in 61 yeah. during the great famine. And then... Um, more interestingly is the MBS coming out with one statement to defy this uh, this report, saying, no, our population kept growth last year. But this is no point, right? Everyone knows, like, you can say, like, 2020, you still maintain the population growth, but how about 2021? Mm-hmm. How about the 20? You know? yeah. So the Chinese population is peaking. If not the last year, it could be this year or next. It's mm-hmm. much earlier than expected. The trends are already there. There are, uh, you know, the, the, the new buses has been dropped possibly below 10 million last year. And the, the, the society, the whole society is aging so quickly that few, you know, human being society have ever witnessed. And, and I don't think the Chinese government or the Chinese society has been well prepared for this wave of uh, aging population. Mm. It will be much faster and on a larger scale than Japan. And also China's uh, economic uh, uh, development level or China's preparation, China's family wealth are in nowhere to compare, you know, Japan in the, ni- in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. So this is really a serious problem uh, that could hinder China's long-term economic growth. Yes. Yeah. I was going to ask you why is the number so sensitive, but I think you've already answered <laughs> answered that question. John, is it, uh, you know, is it, it how much of a... Um, issue is this for the economy? We saw the People's Bank of China come out with um, some some recommendations. I think that they were even um, maybe softly recommending opening up to some more immigration and so on. So this is clearly something that runs very deep. Yeah, no, I, it, almost an alarming report by yeah. the uh, PBOC and saying, you know, you need to get the population up or it's going to erode the, con- the country's economic outlook mm-hmm. badly. And this is what, when I first came to China in 2006, this is one of the themes that China had to get rich before it got old, because even then they knew this was coming. 
And China has gotten rich to a point, but is it rich enough in order to afford this, the rapid aging of society that Joe Shin just described? We'll have to wait and see. What we think we know is even though the population reportedly now rose in 2020, uh, we are quoting demographers saying that by 2022, so in two years, mm -hmm. the population will start to decline. That's five years earlier than previously expected. And the problem that Joe Shin talked about, this rapid aging of society, the costs that are involved there, older people don't spend as much money as younger people do. Um, this all affects the population. They're not employed. Uh, they don't have to buy a house. They don't have to buy a car. They already have all that. There is a, a rise in medical care, but it doesn't offset the other purchases of big ticket items. And so this erodes your economic potential. And what does it mean for China in five years, 10 years, 20 years? We don't know yet. But it's starting soon, and it will have a major impact. And it will affect a whole series of policy initiatives. The two-child policy, which was implemented five years ago, hasn't been that successful because the Chinese have gotten used to having one kid and the <laughs> cost of living in the big cities is high. And so having a second child is prohibitive. Mm -hmm. Now, Joe Shin has two kids, but he lives here in Hong Kong. <laughs> <laughs> Even more expensive. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, one thing that is so sensitive because Fingba, this is a, the family planning policy has one political uh, implications for the ruling Chinese Communist Party, right? One perception is that, oh, the Communist Party is so great at long-term planning things, while the Western politicians only focus on the polling uh, for the next quarter or next month. The Chinese leadership can plan for the country for the next 10, 20 years. And so this is a, this is a planning that, you know, has, has been, been going on for decades. And then it, at the end of the day, you know, people realize, gradually realize, that you know the, the the costs of this policy has been significantly being underestimated, mm -hmm. or this policy has been implemented for too long and also too extreme. Mm -hmm. When I was a child, you know this was uh, this was happening in China, and, it, and it's uh, it's it's called uh, one one uh, one veto. You know, if you are a town chief, for instance, managing a, an area of thousands of people, you know, if there's one household that's breaking the family uh, uh, planning rule, if they have an extra child, you know, as a town chief. Your bonus or your promotion would be up in the air. <laughs> so you know these these are the these are the uh, the political pressures. So every every government official just putting all the resources to 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 making absolutely sure that the family planning policy is implemented. So if there's a murder, if somebody is killed, uh, possibly you know we can uh, it's still urgent matter, but possibly we can give it a little bit of time. But if there's another pregnant woman is going to give an unauthorized child, this is something bigger than the murder, wow. possibly. Yeah. And, and then remember, in 1990s, exactly 30 years ago, in Shandong province, they they implement this inhuman, uh, this horrible campaign called uh, um, uh, "No Child Within 100 Days," which means all my hospitals. Just cannot allow any new babies. Okay, this is all on the record. Yeah, <laughs> this, yeah. this is why you know uh, Chen Guangcheng in the first first, first place get getting into trouble with the Chinese government, and now now you know uh, gradually the whole nation waked up that you know these kind of things you know for sake of control the population for sake of you know uh, to reduce the new buses, mm -hmm. maybe you know we have been implemented too much. Now China has to face an even bigger project. 
is to encourage young people to have, have more babies. And this will be even more challenging. You know, yeah. if you look at the experience in Japan, in Taiwan, in Germany, you know, this is this will be equally equally challenging. They break out the oysters and the Guinness. Well, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it, other policies will be affected too. And there's a, uh, the government said in its work report that was released in, uh, earlier this year that it would gradually increase the retirement age. This is a very controversial measure because people – have been expecting to retire at a certain age and then they can relax. Well, if you raise that age, mm. what you do is they work longer and they contribute longer to the um, pension funds, which you know fund the older people that are already there. Uh, but you have to work longer, whether you want to or not, and that is very controversial. Mm. Uh, this is a, a big thing, and with China's economy, or I'm sorry, Chinese population declining. The second, third, fourth, and eighth largest economies in the world, that's China, Japan, Germany, and Italy, are all, their populations are all shrinking. Mm -hmm. All developing, or if you consider China for a minute a developed country, all large economies whose populations are shrinking, what does that do for global growth? What does that mean for the outlook for the world economy? Fascinating. We yes. could do an entire podcast yeah, exactly. about maybe we should. Yeah, maybe we should. <laughs> maybe there is. <laughs> no, no, no. Ask, ask the film, the China's most fa- famous film director Zhang Yimou. He was fined the record amount of money for having more than one child. Right? He, he had like three or four kids and being fined like several million yuan because. Yeah. You know, no such policies in, uh, uh, in, in, in the Catholic. How did you get away with the Joshua? <laughs> yeah. I no. sent my picture to the leadership. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, please, more of this. Can I just say there was, it's, it's quite alien to me as an Irish Catholic who grew up with, <laughs> yeah. with uh, a fa- five kids in the household oh, and well. neighbours who had families of much, much larger than this. I mean, it's, it's, it's a really amazing topic. Indeed. Um, Indeed. I'm sure we'll get into it again soon. Uh, we will hear more about the census. When, do we have an idea when this is actually no. going to be released? No. I think the <laughs> earliest would be uh, middle May. Mm. Yeah. yeah the, the mainland is on vacation next week, so no one expects it then. Uh-huh. The rumors are that it might not be until June. I mean, this yeah. is... They're trying to squeeze out a few more babies. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or rub down those numbers and make, <laughs> make them shine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, my. Just to finish up, I, I wanted to run a few things run by a few things that happened in Europe this week um, three calls in three weeks between Angela Merkel and top Chinese officials having spoken twice with Xi Jinping this week it was Li Keqiang's tur- uh, turn to talk to the outgoing Chancellor who gave him a gentle nudge I would say on human rights issues while Premier Li urged to keep the focus on areas of cooperation again citing the fact that there are different dem- definitions for human rights in China and Europe uh, on Thursday night it was announced that China's other great friend in the, in the EU, Hungary's Viktor Orban, had held a call with Xi Jinping, in which Xi thanked him for his firm adherence to friendly policy towards China and safeguarding the overall China-Europe relations. <laughs> that was a great line because, as we know, Hungary is um, the party within the European Union that keeps blocking all the legislation on Hong Kong. <laughs> in every, what, each of the 27 nations is able to veto such thing. You have to have, this is the, the, you have you to know, have unanimous the perils consent. of the European democracy is that every 27, uh-huh. each of 27 members has to agree on everything, which rarely happens. Um, so when something gets done, anything gets done, it's quite an achievement in Europe. Um, 
all, all the while the European Parliament is in session, uh, they've had their plenary this week, and one of the topics of debate was the Chinese countersanctions from March, which were uh, on 10 individuals and four entities, very broad and sweeping. We're going to play you a little bit of audio from the European Parliament now. This is Dr. Hannah Neumann, a Green MEP from Germany. The Greens, don't forget, are soaring ahead in the opinion polls in Germany and could be one of the biggest parties after Merkel leaves office. So I think it is important as a consequence that we also are very clear in our response as the European Parliament as a whole. As members of the Human Rights Committee, we can no longer travel to China. We can also not invite Chinese experts to our committee because they would equally face sanctions and we cannot rely on the work of think tankers because they are banned from going to China. So when it comes to the Chinese agreement on investment that China wants us to ratify, we may be able to discuss the economic dimension at length, but we are kept by China from discussing its effects on human rights. And I am not willing to let a foreign country dictate me how to do my job as a member of parliament. And I don't think any one of you should accept that. And I'm not sure if we're clear on that across the board. So as long as any one of us is under sanctions, I think this parliament should refuse to even start discussing the CHI, let alone ratify it. Because our commitment to human rights, our solidarity with the Uyghurs and the democratic movement in Hong Kong has to be more important than any potential economic effort, any potential economic benefit market access could have. She was talking about the investment deal the European Union and China agreed in December. Um, you know, Angela Merkel is still a very strong sponsor of this. Of course, China still wants it to happen, but the European Parliament has to ratify it next year. It doesn't look like that's going to happen. Um, so I guess when you've got Merkel and, and she and Li Keqiang speaking every week, it seems like things might be, might be rosy. But when you listen to the parliamentarians, this doesn't look so good. Zhou Xin, is that something that China is aware of, is the dichotomy in Europe? Uh, well, I think if uh, I think China clearly realised that, that's why you know they are having more and more conversations yeah. uh, with the with the with the, with the European politicians. But on the other hand, I mean, it's uh, it's really up to the Europeans. I mean, the um, uh, I'm, China has already made its decision, and it's impossible for China to say, "Okay, we decided to unsanction the sanctions we yeah. have already announced." You know, that would be a huge loss of face. Unless, you know, the European would give some very big concessions to persuade China to, to, to do this. Yeah, and I, I would also imagine that there's no way China is going to renegotiate the, um, the the investment deal, which is another thing that parliamentarians are saying that, well, unless we can renegotiate the human rights element of this, we won't vote for it. Well, it took like seven years yeah. to negotiate this. And it would possibly took another seven years to even rectify this. Now we are going to go back and renegotiate this, waiting for another 14 years. <laughs> yeah, not much chance of that happening. Thanks a million for joining us, John Carter and Joe Shin. Thank My you. My pleasure. As critical news stories emerging from China continue to shape lives and business around the world, the weekly SCMP Global Impact Newsletter brings you expert analyses and insights on the economics of COVID-19, society, technology, and the environment. Sign up to receive your weekly email at scmp.com newsletters.
On Tuesday, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi stepped up efforts to provide emergency COVID-19 supplies to South Asian countries in the grips of the pandemic. Talks were held with Afghanistan, Pakistan, Nepal, Sri Lanka and Bangladesh, but notably absent was India, which is currently dealing with the world's worst coronavirus outbreak. On Wednesday, there were more than 379,000 new cases and more than 3,500 new deaths in India from the virus with shocking images of hospitals stretched to the very brink and makeshift crematoriums and funeral pyres being beamed all around the world this week. Very sad images indeed. China and India, of course, there's no love lost there. Two strong male leaders in Xi Jinping and Narendra Modi and a border row just last year that threatened at times to spill over into a more serious conflict. Joined on the line by Sarah Jung in Beijing, who has been reporting on the diplomatic fallout from this all week. Sarah, What's the official explanation for India's absence from Wang Yi's call with South Asian counterparts? So the Chinese side said before and during the meeting that China had invited India to attend the virtual talks. And Wang Yi was reiterating offers um, from China to send aid and support as India deals with this latest coronavirus surge. But India has so far not accepted China's offers to help. And they've instead turned to foreign aid from places like the U.S., its strategic partner, the Quad, and from the U.K. and the European Union. Um, And when I talk to analysts in India and in China, they say that a big part of the reason is that tensions are still simmering over the border conflict between China and India, particularly in the disputed um, Ladakh region that began to flare up in May and June last year. So even though the troops on both sides have pulled back from one key glacial lake in the region, they're still far from complete disengagement. So there's a lot of mistrust still between the two. And it's under that backdrop that India is more reticent to take part in a Chinese-hosted meeting. It's really interesting, um, particularly when we think about how the sort of the gravity of the situation, that politics seems to trump health issues there, Sarah. What, what about for the other nations involved there? I think it was Afghanistan, Pakistan, Nepal, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh. I suppose they're all more favourably disposed to receiving um, COVID-19 um, prevention gear from, from China. Definitely. And I think part of it is because India is going through this, like you said, the worst outbreak of the coronavirus in the world. So that means it has stopped exports of the Indian-made AstraZeneca vaccine, which countries like Bangladesh, for example, were really counting on. And Bangladesh is going through its own outbreak. And now that it can't receive these Indian exports of vaccines, it has to expand their vaccine sources to places like China, China and the U.S. But all of this gives an opening for China to step in and to say, look, we can give you the vaccines that you can't get from India, which is partly, you know, humanitarian, but also it does deepen their influence in the South Asian region Mm. in these countries. Yeah. um, And, and, you know, as you said, there are other parties involved here. The United States, obviously, and and India are aligned. Um, And the US has been um, exporting a lot of of medical gear to to India, as has the European Union and so on. Um, Is there a sense of is there a sense of double standards there where perhaps the Chinese is viewed as, um, you know, operating on a mass diplomacy front? And is that same uh, accusation held against other Western powers who choose to engage on perhaps similar terms? I think it's 
been clear that there's been vaccine and mask diplomacy from China, as well as from these other places. I mean, as we all saw in the last few days, the U.S. was receiving a lot of backlash because they weren't providing um, aid to India, or it seemed like they were a bit slow to offer the aid to India. And Chinese state media really pounced on that and said, you know, look, we're willing to offer aid, but countries like the U.S. that keep um, accusing us of all these different things, they're not offering the same kind of aid to India. So there's a lot of back and forth. And maybe in in certain countries, um, like in India, where there's a lot of skepticism of China, then there would be more charges levied against China for things like vaccine diplomacy. But obviously, on all sides, anyone who's offering any type of aid right now, there is some sort of diplomatic element to that as well. Yeah. I think it's interesting. It's, I suppose for everybody, it's difficult to know where one ends and the other one begins because we all want everybody mm-hmm. to be sharing vaccinations. We want mm-hmm. we want everybody to have access to the, the right gear. Um, so I suppose uh, it's difficult to really tell what is mass diplomacy and what is just straight up altruism. Um, I wanted to to ask you about um, the general political and and geopolitical situation between India and China. You mentioned the military standoff, which was was quite serious last year on the Himalayan border region. Um, That hasn't really been resolved. Um, Are the troops still in place there, Sarah? What is the actual military situation on the ground? So... Um, like you said, at the border situation right now is still quite tense. So even there, though there was this initial disengagement, there have been subsequent border talks and there hasn't been sort of a resolution or a process forward to complete disengagement. So in India right now, there's still deep, deep public mistrust of China. Um, and the Indian analysts I was talking to, they were saying, really, there is a long way to go to improve relations. And it's quite difficult now to get back to the point before this whole border standoff happened last year, um, particularly because of a bloody clash between the two sides at Galwan Valley last June, which led to the first casualties along the disputed border in you know, nearly four decades. It was a really brutal skirmish that killed at least 20 Indian soldiers and China said four on its side. So that was really a boiling point for public opinion in India. And and things have not really been resolved from there. Even Chinese analysts are saying they're quite pessimistic that even over the next year, things can get better. So that means it's hard for the two to cooperate on anything, including on COVID-19. Yeah, yeah. And so you said that the the mistrust is deep in India. You're in Beijing there. What's the sense of how people in Beijing view India just generally? I mean, is there that same level of mistrust? They're obviously the two biggest and and most powerful nations, uh, perhaps just Japan aside, in in this region. But, But generally, what is the sense you get on the ground in Beijing? Actually, it's interesting when I talk to Chinese analysts and people here because there isn't as much of a focus on India or South Asia. Really, the predominant issue is China-U.S. relations or China's relations with the West more broadly. Most people are not really that focused on what's happening with India, even at the height of the the border conflict last year when things in India were at, at such a high point. Um, in China here, the, the public opinion was not really focused on that as much, which is, is interesting. But it's because analysts say that historically, you know, there is there just isn't that much of an interest below the border, um, the southern border of China. So it's more about, you know, China's relations abroad. 
Really interesting. And Sarah, before we finished up, I just wanted to ask you about how things are there because you've recently relocated from Hong Kong to Beijing. What's the story in China with uh, in terms of uh, precautions? Are you able to to move around freely in terms of coronavirus uh, pandemic um, containment measures? Back to normal up there, I'd say. Uh, I guess it's relatively back to normal. It was really interesting because I went to a bar the other night and there was a live music performance and people were dancing. There were no social distancing re- uh, restrictions. So that was that was really a novel sight for me. But I think in Beijing, it's still there are still more um, restrictions in place compared to other places. I was quarantining in Shanghai earlier. And in Beijing, when you enter supermarkets or malls, you still have to scan a specific Beijing health code um, to enter these buildings. But it's really more of a formality since there haven't been COVID cases here for a month. Great to hear. Okay, well, enjoy your nightclubs. Uh, Have a great weekend and thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks a lot. You too. Thanks for listening to this week's China Geopolitics podcast with me, Finbar Birmingham. We'll be back next week with the same razor-sharp analysis from the lads on all the big issues of the day. Until then, you know the drill by now. Wear your mask, keep your distance, wash your hands, etc. But we'll see you next week. For more podcasts from the South China Morning Post, head to scmp.com, where you can hear more about technology, trade, culture, and society. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.